I'm really pleased today to be welcoming into the reading corner Alexis Court, who is a rugby player, podcaster, broadcaster, advocate, activist. And today in particular, we're going to be talking about his new book, Queer Up. Um, It's a much needed guide written in the tone of a big friend, a grown up friend to a teen um, audience. Uh, So first of all, I'd love to welcome you into the Reading Corner, Alexis. Hello, thank you so much for having me today. It's a real, real pleasure to be here. There's a lot to talk to you about. And what I really appreciated, if I I go straight in to what I appreciated most about um, uh, the book, was a word that you mentioned at the beginning, that we need to be talking now about nuance. And this is a book that is very nuanced, so much so that sometimes you have to go back and reread to really understand uh, and get a grip on just how complex the area is that we're looking at. Yeah, it's I mean, when we're looking at identity, gender, sexuality, race, disability, all of these things are so nuanced because there are how many billions of people on this planet And every single one of us have our own experience of existence. Even identical twins will navigate the world differently. And so we need nuance in our lives and we need nuance in these really difficult conversations. It's one of those things which I'm slightly terrified about in that our our discourse and discussion around identity has become so threatening and so polarised, it doesn't often leave space for learning or admitting that we don't have all of the answers. So yeah, nuance is really needed whenever we come to these discussions about identity. And it just so happens that in this book, Queer Up, we're talking about LGBTQ plus identities. Now, I identify as a mostly cisgendered gay man. I say mostly because as I go into the book, actually, my Gender identity is a bit more complicated than cis, but it's how I present to the wide world. And my experiences that I navigate are as a gay male. However, there are plenty of people in the community who don't have those experiences and those labels that I wear. And so we hand over the pen to them and we hear from them in a few different ways to try and get some of their nuanced experience and their takes on things. We will come back to this in a little while, I think, but one of the places where... Um, this works so well is in the chapter about trans because that isn't your experience and you're not you're not pretending it is and you do need to hand over to other voices and what comes through then is this real uh, I don't know I just love that conversation you could see minds meeting and that my mind was growing through listening to the conversation between these two yeah and we, we have many chapters in the book which look at a whole number of different things from we don't even start with coming out, which many people would think would be the logical place to start a book about sexuality and identity. Actually, we take a step back and we start with questioning because actually that's a huge step, which can often go on for years for people. And then, yeah, we look at coming out and we look at sexuality and love and families and relationships we even have actual sex education but yeah one of my favorite chapters in there I hand the pen over to two wonderful women that I really really admire and count myself very lucky to 
to have in my life. Kachenga Shenjay, who is a phenomenal writer and speaker, and Charlie Craggs, who is also another wonderful writer and trans activist. And together, they have written this wonderful conversational chapter where they really invite the reader in to their little trans coven, as they call it, to understand actually some of the different elements of navigating and experiencing the world as trans. So yeah, they talk about transitioning in there. They talk about the experience of that. But Kachenga raises this wonderful point, which I hadn't ever considered about a spiritual transition as well. She broke it down into these three pillars of, yeah, you've got medical transition, you've got a societal transition, but there's also this spiritual transition that you feel within yourself. And that's one of the wonderful things that actually it really comes down to feelings about oneself and feelings within oneself. And that's so important to get to the, to, across to different people because in our social discourse around queer identities, alternative sexualities, with the kind of air quotes around that phrase, and trans identities, so much of the discourse has become actually not about feeling and it's become about outraged sentiment and scare tactics and if we can really strip it down to these are people who want to live their lives without harassment without being told that they have to feel bad about themselves simply for existing Mm -hmm. and I also think it's just wonderful to experience and read the joy and the hilarity and the love that they both have in their experience as well I want to talk about some of the anxieties. I think that's how I would express it. The anxieties that people have about age and this feeling of you can't know at four. You you know, you can't know until you kind of become a teenager or you hit puberty. And this concern that children might be pushed into feeling uncomfortable with their bodies at a young age and then regressing it later. So mm. I'm not expressing my own viewpoint here, but I am expressing what I think is a commonly yeah. held anxiety. It is, on the surface, a logical place to be cautious or concerned about. And I understand that and I don't demonise anybody for being concerned. Ultimately, everybody wants what is best and what is safest for children. We all want that. But it's very easy when trans people make up 1% of the population, when we don't actually know other trans people, when we maybe don't experience that for ourselves, to get caught up in a narrative created by others rather than listening to the people who have experienced that themselves. And the research and the experiences of trans people shows that overwhelmingly trans people do actually know who they are from a young age in terms of the actually you see it young children who are assigned a certain gender at birth draw themselves as the other gender they are gravitating towards clothes or that are assigned to the other gender and if we think about it to use a a slightly different analogy which i hope people will understand Back in the days, I think it was like 50s or 60s, when it when in school there was still corporal punishment and kids who were left-handed would be beaten for writing with their left hand. Suddenly that stopped 
And suddenly loads more people started writing with their left hand and be like, oh, no, I'm actually left-handed, not right-handed. Then what happened a little bit later, homosexuality was decriminalized. Suddenly you got far more people coming out. It's not that, oh, back in my day, nobody was homosexual, nobody was trans. It's, well, actually, back in your day, nobody was left-handed because they weren't allowed to be. Now people are actually being allowed to express who they are. So it's understandable that it might look to the outside eye that there's this, quote-unquote, explosion of people identifying as genderqueer, trans, non-binary. But actually, that's because people are being given a, a word to explain how they feel, and they're no longer being, well, as much, because they are still heavily, sadly, penalised um, and politicised and targeted for that identity. But it's no longer the same barrier that it used to be. And so really, I think that's what's behind this, quote unquote, explosion in younger people identifying as trans, non-binary or genderqueer, because they are allowed to, because we are actually doing our job as people and progressing the social conversation. And we are making more space for children to come behind us and be free to express themselves, be authentic to themselves, to not be beaten because they're left handed. I have to say, I love the idea of nail transphobia and going around and meeting people by doing their nails, because actually knowledge is getting to know people and understanding. Um, You mentioned in the past there, and I want to talk a little bit about history, which you say is a real passion (laughs) of yours. I've been reading a paper recently about uh, the queer Viking world. And it kind of struck me how children's, you know, history Mm. that is presented for children and historical fiction that is written for children, you rarely see relationships other than heteronormative relationships. And yet that's not the real picture, is it? Queer people and our stories have always been here. We have always been part of histories and cultures around the world. It is unfortunate that we have been deliberately written out of many of our stories. And even some of the ones which do exist today that were written in in much more subtle ways, encoded ways to get through this net of censorship, which came from culture, society and religion, we don't acknowledge them in the same way. So schools up and down the country teach Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day can be recited by anybody who's done GCSE English in this country. And yet we don't actually talk about that. That sonnet was written to another man, that it contains references to homosexuality. We don't talk about that Hadrian's Wall, one of our famous ancient world monuments in this country. Hadrian, the guy who built it, that it's named after, was married to another man. We don't talk about the fact that we've had gay kings and queens. It's this strange bit where we have always been here. Our stories, part of the stories of our nation, of our folklore, and yet we get left out. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a strange rootlessness that that gives LGBTQ people, because no matter 
what community you are born into, whether that is a religious, a cultural, a racial, even a footballing family. You are taught the songs and the history of your people unless you are LGBTQ. We are born alone and we have to figure these things out. And not seeing ourselves in history, not knowing anybody in the communities that we grew up in, not seeing people in our school is an alienating experience, which no other minority goes through. And that's why writing about these things and books like Queer Up and the other wonderful books like it, I think are so important to get to young people because it helps root them and connect them to not just part of a living community here, but it helps them understand their history, our songs, our politics, and connects them back to a community and a culture which has stretched back thousands of years. I love what you're saying there. And I think, you know, I've put together our Just Imagine book list coming up for LGBTQ plus history month. And it struck me how there was nothing historical Mm. in that list at all, even though we now have a really good body of fiction, poetry, nothing that really suggests that this is, as you say, reaching way back. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that your book does is provide some really good tips on well-being and how to take care of yourself. Tell us something about this. I mean, mental health and our mental well-being is just enormous for everybody. And 52% of LGBTQ plus people do experience mental health issues and unfortunately are also less likely to access health because of fear of stigmatization and mistreatment from the NHS. Now, as somebody who practices psychotherapeutically in the NHS, that makes me really sad. But you wanted to talk about the practical bits of mental health support in this book. And I think it's one of those things where we can talk about mental health until the cows come home. Um, And my granddad was a dairy farmer. I'm still not fully sure what that phrase means. Um, But one of the things I think we have to do as well is also move to action with our mental health. And it's not always these big tasks. Sometimes it can be thinking, what do I need in this instant? What is going to make this go better for me? So one of the really, really practical tips in there is how to set up actually to have a nice conversation and that's an acronym which is discussed in the book and it's actually about right if you're going to have if you're having a stressful conversation how do we set this conversation up to go as best for you as possible so following the acronym of nice well we start with your needs express to the person that you're talking to what do you need from this conversation so mum dad uh i need to talk to you and i just i just need you to listen please Then I explain the impact. This has been weighing on my mind for a really long time. And it's made me feel really, making me feel really bad because of all this pressure just building up. And I feel like I need to get this out of my system or I'm going to explode. So explain the impact and the seriousness of this. The consequences, which comes next. I hope by having this conversation with you, mum and dad, that actually you can understand why I've been moody, why I've been angry, why I've been withdrawn, why I've not been 
seemed like myself. And then finally, E for expectations. Say clearly what you need from this conversation, but also let the people know that you're having this conversation, what they need to do as well. Take that pressure off them, signpost how they can help, because that's what everyone wants to do. We want to help. So you set your expectations of like, I don't have all the answers myself yet. So please don't ask me loads of questions. And I understand if you need time, I just need my mum and dad. I just need a hug. And I just need to be honest. And I just need for you to listen. So that's a really, really tangible way that actually we can start talking about our emotions and through really basic formulation of a conversation, that's how we can hopefully have nice conversations, which I think is a really tangible way that we can set up conversations around our mental health to go better. Mm. I will just say for anybody that's uh, listening into the podcast that there are lots of other practical ways of uh, self-help as well. There's your 54321, which people can read about. uh, And as I say, lots of other ideas. The other things that you talk about is finding your tribe. And I just want to say that one of the problems specifically for young people is that they have to go to school. In school, you are faced with the people regardless of your choices. So it really made me feel that this book is incredibly useful for teachers as well, because they can be the ones that help to find places where they can find their tribe. Absolutely. And I, and I, I don't say this just as the child of teachers, but teachers just, I think, have the most important job on earth. And one of those reasons is because teachers set the tone for arguably the most important part in our developments, who we are in our teens, our experience in schools, the narrative that that sets up in life is enormous. And there are wonderful things that teachers can do. Teachers can decide, you know what, actually, I am never going to be a silent standby in this because, and I'll I'll give a really tangible personal example here. I experienced, as many people do, homophobic bullying in school. It was always in the corridors and in the playgrounds. And then one day, and I can remember the class, and I won't name the teacher (laughs) now, but somebody referred to me using a pejorative home like words in that class in front of the teacher and you could just hear the tension in the room as the kids looked at the teacher to see what his response was going to be and I remember getting eye contact with him because he looked at me and he just turned back to the board and kept on writing and in that moment what he did was he declared it open season because at that point they knew that they could get away with it. He just co-signed on homophobia and every teacher who doesn't challenge that, who lets it slide in front of them is co-signing and saying that that behavior is absolutely fine. Mm. Now we come towards the end and thinking about the great strides that have been made. You do actually have a section in your book. Is It's about the history of campaigning. Uh, you've got Peter Tatchell, you yeah. know, talking about his campaign, campaigning. And clearly we have come a long way. 
But what is there that's left to be done? You know, in terms of practical mm. ways forward, what can we do to make things even better? And I think I mean systemically as well as at a personal level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where do we even begin with such a big thing? Because there is so much work still to be done, which can also feel exhausting and daunting sometimes. And in a culture where the dominant narrative is increasingly, what do you mean? You've got pride. You've got a whole pride month. Where's straight pride? You've got gay marriage. What do you mean? What are you complaining about? Oh, those queers are just getting uppity again. Actually, there is so, so much work to be done. Conversion therapy, a recognised practice of torture, is still legal. We know that homophobic bullying is the number one form of bullying in schools, which is documented by Stonewall and the TES. And yet last year, the government removed all funding for anti-homophobic bullying programmes in schools. Yes, back in the day when I was in school, because of Section 28, a book like mine would have been banned. Mm -hmm. And part of the popular mythology around Section 28 is that it was all repealed in 2003 and everything was fine. Well, actually, no, it was only partially repealed in 2003. And in many places in the country, it wasn't fully repealed in 2010. So somebody my age, my entire school career was under the pressure of Section 28. And when we remove funding for anti-homophobic bullying campaigns, when we remove funding for SRE and inclusive education, actually, that's Section 28 by another name. You can ban things outright, or you can just create an environment where it's impossible for anyone to do anything. And I think that's more insidious. The way that actually a conversation which should be around how do we make kids safer, less likely to harm themselves, less likely to engage with thoughts of suicide has become a conversation targeting trans students and pretending that they're at risk to their other colleagues in classes. 1% of the population are trans and 1% of trans people detransition. So we're talking about the 1% of the 1%. And yet that is being used as this excuse to deny so many kids support and time and opportunity and space to work these things out for themselves and understand who they are. And so in terms of what work is there to do, oh, there's so much at a systemic (laughs) level, but we can all take part in that every day by challenging casual instances of homophobia and transphobia. We can challenge that by creating actually inclusive environments. We can support LGBTQ people by giving them space, by giving them a bit of grace. And one of the biggest gifts that I was given by two phenomenal teachers and and When I say they saved my life while I was in school, I literally mean they saved my life. School was unbearable. And yet I was given grace and time and understanding by these two wonderful women, Miss Moss and Miss McNamara, who I will forever be grateful to and have thanked them in my book. Because there were times in school when I would be so 
angry, I would act out, I would misbehave, I would bunk off, couldn't be bothered to do my work because I had all of this pain going on. And they recognized that actually the reason why I was acting out wasn't because I was a horrible little kid, even though that was probably how I was behaving. They recognized actually here's someone who is going through some big things and they gave me time and they gave me space to just be. And they also gave me an experience where actually they were safe when so much of my school experience was dangerous and unsafe. And so teachers can be these wonderful safe spaces for students. I want to say, uh, Alexis, thank you for name checking those teachers. Good teachers can make all the difference. I also want to say how much reading can help us as well. Um, We will go on learning all through our lives. And uh, it's true that I learned things reading your book that were new to me. And I thank you for that. And I know it's going to be very useful for young people and their teachers in school. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really appreciated. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.